Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's WHTT Bible examination, we're in the book of Acts. We're going to be starting chapter 26. And as we like to do, we would like to offer up a prayer. I'd like to do something just a a little different for our prayer today. Particularly, this is being recorded on the 5th of August, 2014, There's a brief truce right now in Gaza, and the toll is just horrendous. It's it's just so saddening, and of course, we in America have culpability on this. And so when I read this, this is by Rabbi Brant Rosen, and uh, he has a, a synagogue in Evanston, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, and I want to just read his what he said. This Monday night begins the Jewish fast of Teshiva B'Av, a day of mourning for the calamities that have befallen the Jewish people over the centuries. Among other things, the traditional Teshiva B'Av liturgy includes the chanting biblical book of Lamentations. Given the profoundly tragic events currently unfolding in Gaza, I offer this reworking of the first chapter of Lamentations. I share it with the hope that on this day of mourning, we might also mourn the mounting death in Gaza, along with what Israel has become. It's entitled, A Lamentation for Gaza. Gaza weeps alone. Bombs falling without end, her cheeks wet with tears. A widow abandoned, imprisoned on all sides, with none willing to save her. We, who once knew oppression, have become the oppressors. Those who have pursued are now the pursuers. We have uprooted families from their homes. We have driven them deep into this desolate place this narrow strip of exile. All along the roads there is mourning. The teeming marketplaces have been bombed into emptiness. The only sounds we hear are cries of pain, sirens blaring, drones buzzing, bitterness echoing into the black vacuum of homes destroyed and dreams denied. We have become Gaza's master, leveling neighborhoods with the mere touch of a button for her transgression of resistance, 
Her children are born into captivity. They know us only as occupiers, enemies to be feared and hated. We have lost all that once was precious to us. This fatal attachment to our own might has become our downfall. This idolatrous veneration of the land has sent us wandering into a wilderness of our own making. We have robbed Gaza of her deepest dignity, plunged her into sorrow and darkness. Her people crowd into refugee camps, held captive by fences and buffer zones, gunboats, mortar rounds, and Apache missiles. We sing of Jerusalem to a free people in their own land, but our song has become a mockery. How can we sing a song of freedom imprisoned inside behind walls we have built with our own fear and dread? Here we sit clinging to our illusions of comfort and security while we unleash hell on earth on the other side of the border. We sit on hillsides and cheer as our explosions light up the sky while far below whole neighborhoods are reduced to rubble. For these things I weep, for the toxic fear we have unleashed from the dark place of our hearts, for the endless grief we are inflicting on the people of Gaza. And that was by Rabbi Brant Rosen. We don't hear those kind of prayers from our brothers in Christ. The prayers typically are designed not to offend anybody and be general or just localized. So with that said, I'd like to welcome Mark to our study. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Tom. It has truly been horrifying to follow the events of the past few weeks over there. We've been looking at the book of Acts, and we are down to what we call the trials of Paul towards the latter end of the book of Acts. And by carefully studying Paul's defense and the charges made against him, we can determine a lot about the nature of the kingdom of God. And, and this relates directly to, I believe, what's happening uh, in Gaza right now. We have so many Americans who believe that the government of Israel is somehow the kingdom of God restored and have divine backing for the wholesale slaughter of innocent civilians and children. Uh, so I want to review a couple of things here before we progress into Acts 26. Paul, back in Acts 24, verse 15, was talking about his beliefs and saying that uh, that he had hope toward God which they themselves also wait for, the, the Judean leadership, that there is about to be a rising again of the dead, both of righteous and unrighteous. And in this I do exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense toward God and men always. As, as we will see uh, a little bit later, there is a direct connection between the resurrection of the dead and the establishment of God's kingdom. But it's not what most of us have been taught uh, in America. Um, not everyone is open to learning new things, as I learned uh, a few days ago, <laughs> uh, teaching a similar class here locally. 
Paul and the Pharisees both believe in the resurrection, but they believe different things. They were both expecting it imminently there in the first century, but as uh, we talked about last time, they they had a different idea of it. Uh, Paul had come, and I think this happened after he was visited by the Lord on the road to Damascus, he gave up his old Pharisaic physical expectations of a physical kingdom and a physical resurrection and understood that these were spiritual concepts. Uh, A parallel to this would be back in John chapter 6, which we looked at some months ago. But in the sixth chapter of John, there is a multitude following Jesus around, uh, but they have a problem because they don't have anything to eat. In Luke's parallel account, we're told that the crowd was set down in companies, and anyone walking by would have thought it was a military encampment. Uh, There were at least 5,000 men present, plus their families. The multitude wanted a physical kingdom and a physical king. Jesus fed them all, which was a logistical miracle, and this would have been a great attribute for a military general to be able to feed his army by snapping his fingers uh, every time they needed to eat. And so, by uh, the 15th verse of John 6, Jesus understood that they were about to come and seize him to make him king. Now, this is an incredibly powerful point, because if our dispensational friends are correct when they assert that God intended to set up a physical kingdom in Palestine in the first century, well, right here in John 6 is the opportunity. Jesus was the king. He was in the lineage of David. He wanted to set up a kingdom. And here are the people of Judea, uh, Galilee, but they were Judean by nationality, and they wanted to make him a king. So there's no problem, right? Well, Jesus didn't accept their offer. It says he withdrew into the mountain alone by himself, and then he snuck down at night and left the multitude behind and went back to Capernaum. Uh, So this is incredibly significant, and it's a point in debate that no dispensationalist can really counter. Because they claim that this was God's intent. Here we have an example of the people trying to fulfill the dispensational intent to set up a physical kingdom in the first century, and Jesus was not interested. So they both wanted to restore the throne of David. They both wanted to restore the kingdom to Israel. But you see, they were on two different wavelengths. One are thinking physically or carnally. The other is thinking spiritually. So I believe this is an important parallel to this discussion of resurrection that is going on here during the trials of Paul. Uh, They both are expecting a very imminent resurrection, 
but one is looking for a physical carnal resurrection and the other is looking for a spiritual resurrection. Um, another important point, and again, this goes right to this idea of, you know, of the government of Israel has the right to steal the, ho- the homes and farms of uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, without any compensation, and, and they're the rightful kingdom of God. We go back to First uh, Samuel, and there were no kings in Israel before this time. Israel was ruled by judges. Samuel was really the last in the line of the judges. In First Samuel 8 and 4, we have this account. The elders of Israel gathered and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Look, you've gotten old, and your sons have not followed in your ways. Now appoint a king to us to judge us like all the other nations have. So they, they wanted a physical king. Samuel responds in verse 6, The thing was evil in Samuel's eyes when they said, Give to us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to Yahweh. And Yahweh told Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people, to all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from reigning over them. According to all the works that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day when they forsook me and served other gods, so they are also doing to you. So God is basically saying that their desire for a king was part of an ongoing state of rebellion. Now if we jump uh, up to 1 Samuel 10 and verse 17, uh, God's trying to make sure that they really want to do this. Saul has been kind of anointed already by this time, but God wants them to have a uh, second chance to back out, to change their mind. Okay, so in verse 18, he said to the sons of Israel, So says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I caused Israel to come up out of Egypt, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms who oppressed you. But today you have rejected your God, who himself is your deliverer, from all your evils and your distresses. Yet you say to him, Set a king over us, and now present yourselves before the face of Yahweh by your tribes and by your families. We skip ahead to 1 Samuel 12, verse 16. It says, And now present yourselves and see this great thing that Yahweh will do before your eyes. Is not the wheat harvest today? I will call to Yahweh, and he will give sounds and rain. And know and see that your evil is great that you have done in the eyes of Yahweh to ask a king for yourselves. And Samuel called to Yahweh, and Yahweh gave sounds and rain in that day, and all the people greatly feared Yahweh and Samuel. And the people said to Samuel, Pray to Yahweh your God for your servants that we may not die, for we have added this evil to all our sins in asking a king for ourselves. So, this is incredibly powerful, and again, no dispensationalist can successfully refute this in any kind of discussion or debate. But from the very beginning of God's dealings with Israel, to ask for a physical king was a visible sign of rebellion. And if the eternal purpose of God through the Messiah is to restore the kingdom to Israel, to make it what it should have been all along, do you think 
that God would have changed his mind and decided, well, okay, now having a physical king is okay. Does that make any sense at all? And you can answer or not, but uh, they're in the audience here. <laughs> but uh, the, the only defense that's usually offered against this is the idea that David was a physical king and he was a man after God's own heart. And it is true that David was a man after God's own heart, but it does not in any way tell us that God changed his mind about a physical king being evil. Um, David was a good man with flaws, like many of us have, but uh, being a king, I don't believe, was what made him a man after God's own heart. He made the the throne of God accessible to people of all nations by setting up the ark in Jerusalem with an awning over it and anyone could see God's throne. And I believe this is the key to what that really means that he was a man after God's own heart. He, he was a preview of what Jesus would do in opening the doors of the kingdom to people of all nations and all corners of the earth. David was actually doing that uh, back during his time. All right. Well, that's a little aside, but it 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 helps us set the stage here for what why Paul and the Pharisees are on totally different wavelengths and again why so many evangelical Christians in America are on a totally different wavelength from God in giving the the uh, physical nation of Israel today any kind of respectability as as the government of God, the kingdom of God in any form, uh, shape, or fashion. All right, any thoughts or comments? I was told uh, Israel is the apple of God's eye. <laughs> but uh, just uh, last week. <laughs> but um, and, and this is true. And uh, Tom and I were discussing this earlier today. Uh, th this is this is a theme throughout the Bible that Israel is the apple of God's eye, and this is this is why the non-dispensational churches have not been successful in debating dispensationalists over the last 100 years because they do not understand that point. They want to say, well, now the church is the apple of God's eye. And the dispensationalists can go back and read scripture after scripture after scripture, which clearly says Israel is the apple of God's eye, Israel is, is the chosen bride of God, and so on and so forth. And, and that's why I believe this new scholarship is, is very important, because we are, we are showing that there wasn't really a point where Israel was just cut off and ended, and all of a sudden a new entity called the church started. What we have been seeing as we go through the book of Acts is that Israel, beginning with the preaching of John the Immerser, and going all the way to the destruction of the temple, the old physical flawed prostitute Israel is being transformed, not replaced, but transformed into a spiritual, perfect, pure bride and a, and a spiritual, holy temple 
made up of anointed living believers who serve as the stones of this new spiritual temple. And so it, it, may be, it may seem to be a minor point that Israel was transformed from the carnal into the spiritual as opposed to replaced, but it, it really helps us to expose the heresy of dispensationalism uh, much more biblically because we can, we can embrace all of those scriptures and say, yes, God in, always intended for Israel to be a perfect bride, but this could never happen until the Messiah came to purify her with his own blood. And, of course, most of physical Israel was not interested, and they were cut off from God everlastingly uh, for their rebellion and, and their murder and, and hatred and so on. And, uh, again, the present-day state of Israel, not, I mean, 49% of the population probably agrees with us, but the others who are party to this butchery and murder, I mean, they're in no better state than were the ancient Judeans uh, in the first century. Um, they don't have a lot to look forward to. It's just my opinion. Um, and I hope I haven't confused it further. But uh, I, I, I do believe that this is so important. And, and the, the men who are debating dispensationalists with this understanding that, yes, the promises were all made to Israel, but they could only be fulfilled through a spiritual transformation, the dispensationalists can't deal with that. And they, there's very few of them that will debate anyone uh, holding this position. So I believe it's a much more powerful platform on which to oppose this heresy that has gripped our nation and is responsible for this senseless butchery uh, in the Middle East. Uh, John, any comment? Well, if, yeah, Mark, if, if uh, you're talking to someone... Uh, this is a very familiar figure uh, that, that uh, there are thousands like this who, who says, well, I just so happen to believe that God has not uh, abandoned the state of Israel, as you seem to be saying, and that Israel is still God's chosen people. And uh, that's supported by all kinds of scriptures that I could uh, spiel off. And are you saying that uh, God has changed his character and has, uh, has abandoned the state of Israel and uh, taken on uh, someone else in its place? What is your uh, evidence of that? Well, uh, the, the premise that the government of Israel was ever anything to do with God's old covenant with old Israel, you know, is flawed, and we all agree on that. So that's the first thing that... You know, I would point out, you know, it's really hard to find any common basis on which to start such a discussion with a dispensationalist because the, the, the words have different meanings and so on. But they can't handle the song of Moses. Uh, they can't handle all of the judgment pronounced against Israel uh, in the prophets. They can't handle the idea that the book of Revelation was in fact written about first century Judea and first century Jerusalem. Uh, and, you know, you, you have to feel out each person to try to find any opening on where, from where you could begin a discussion using words that both of you could understand. Uh, so, I mean, there's, 
there's no one approach to take, but uh, there's many different places at which you can but start. This, I mean, this, just, person, this person could be a member of our family. It could be very important to be able to make that argument. So where yes. do we start? You know, you, you've got to find common ground. How about Jesus? I mean, he should be common ground if you're both followers of Christ. Well, agreed. But, you know, what was his purpose? You know, in in modern evangelical circles, you know, his purpose was to come and save us so we can go to heaven when we die. And that's not totally false, but it misses the bigger picture that runs from Genesis at least Genesis 2, all the way to the end of Revelation, that his real purpose, the reason that we, we are saved is not as the end in itself, but it is so that we can be those anointed living stones in the perfect temple, in the perfect bride. Uh, so it's not all about us. It's all about Jesus. The Bible is what the Father is going to do for the Son, and what the Son is going to do for the Father. Okay, The Father is going to create the perfect bride for the Son. The Son is then going to create the perfect dwelling place so that His Father can dwell on earth with man as He did in the Garden of Eden. And, and this is the theme of the Bible from Genesis to the end of Revelation. And uh, this was this, in fact, was exactly what I was discussing Sunday uh, here locally when this man who was visiting at the end of the class stood up and said that he went to seminary and he's been teaching the Bible for 35 years and he had never heard one thing that I had said before. Therefore, he knew that it all had to be false and that I must be the worst false teacher he'd ever been exposed to in his life since I was saying things that uh, he'd never heard of before. Hmm. But, but yet this is the theme. My son in college took a course on the Bible as literature, and in that class they discussed the theme of the temple and the theme of the bride that runs from Genesis 2 all the way to the end of Revelation. So I'm... As we've pointed out many times, I'm not pointing out anything new. I'm, we are going back to sound historical scholarship on the Bible, but too many evangelicals in America are completely ignorant of, the, of, of traditional Bible exegesis and, and the relationship of the, the Hebrew Scriptures to the New and so on. And the Jesus that you get from just reading the New Testament is different from the Jesus you get if you read the whole Bible in the context of this theme. So yes, Jesus is a good place to start and establish common ground, but that's not you can't take that for granted either. You have to you have to just you have to probe and find out where you know, there might be an opportunity to establish common ground, establish good definitions. Well, it's very hard to, to even enter into a uh, discussion because it's pretty much closed if you 
before you even get anywhere, challenging yeah, yeah. the fact that uh, Israel is is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It's it's hard to get beyond that point. Yeah, right. yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah. The dispensational believer is is taught that uh, that the Old Testament says that Israel is the fulfillment or is the uh, chosen people. And uh, show me where God uh, took that away. Show me where that's uh, that that this is an everlasting promise. It says, and that uh, and, and that uh, God does not break His word. So show me where He took that away. Yeah, I mean, and you know that ever that word everlasting really literally means age lasting. And when we carefully study the Bible, the age ended when the old physical temple was destroyed. And that's when those promises ended. Uh, you know, many of them was at the end of the age. Uh, that, so, again, but you've got to define all those terms. It, it's, it's extremely difficult. Well, how do we get people back then? Well, I, 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 there's no magic bullet. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you just teach. You've got to teach as much of the the truth as you can and uh we've got to restore the the foundations of bible that 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 were growing until the Schofield bible came out like typology uh i mean all the country preachers in the 1800s who weren't dispensationalists knew and taught typology uh which is jesus in all of these stories and rules and regulations and ceremonies in the old testament um, I, I picked up a book at this lectureship in Ardmore written by uh, Joel McDermott, who uh, he works with uh, Gary DeMar. And he's written a fascinating commentary on the Gospel of Luke. I wished I'd had it when we went through Luke. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. He goes and shows how all these parables that are completely taught out of context in American evangelical churches Every single one of them is teaching about the imminent destruction of the Judean people. And uh, I gave a little talk Sunday uh, on one of his stories. The uh, Jesus cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. And... Uh, of course, the liberal scholars say, oh, that's got to be a mistake. The old story was repeated twice. The authors got it all confused. But Joel McDermott goes back to Leviticus 14, and he, he, where it's describing a house that's infected with leprosy. If you see a, a spot of corruption in your house, you call the priest to come and inspect your house. And uh, he, he, before, you, before he comes, you get everything out of the house because if the house is proclaimed unclean, then everything in it is also proclaimed unclean. And so they get everything out of the house. He comes and inspects, and then he comes back seven days later, and if it's still there, he gets some Levites, and they come in and they scrape it all out, and some of the stones they take out, and they bring in new stones and replace it. And then they come back a little bit later a third time, and if the corruption has come back, they tear the whole house down stone by stone and carry it outside of the city and dispose of it in an unclean place. 
And, you know, we thought this was just some boring, boring part of the Old Testament <laughs> that had absolutely no relation to anything else. And he shows how that when Jesus comes up to Jerusalem for his last time, you know, he has a triumphal entry, and then he sees the city and he bemoans, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, you know, I would gather you, uh, you know, and hug you, but you did not know the time of your visitation. That's how it's worded in the English Bible. But the real word there is the time of your inspection. <laughs> he's, he's using the same word from Leviticus 14. And then he says, and, you know, and not one stone will be left standing on another. Jesus is using the story of the unclean house to proclaim doom on the city of Jerusalem and all who stay in it. it. He pronounces doom on her and all of her children who will be trapped in the city. They'll all be utterly destroyed. So it's, it's just a brilliant work. We've got all this great new scholarship that's going on that absolutely crushes and destroys you know, dispensationalism, if you can get anybody to listen to it. And like, I had a man who is not a dispensationalist, who has no interest in dispensationalism, but he had never heard any of this before, and he wasn't interested in learning anything new. In fact, since he knew it all already, if he heard anything new, he knew it had to be false. So, I mean, that's the trick, is just finding people who will, who will listen with an open mind. How did they... How did the uh, first Christians manage without the books? They didn't have a New Testament, and they didn't have an Old Testament. Well, they had an Old Testament. As, as we've talked about, Mark David Nanos, the scholar, has, has made the strong case that this is why all of the, the uh, Christian churches, and, and church is not a, there is no proper noun word church in the Bible like there's the proper noun word Israel. I mean, to, that it's a badly translated word, ecclesia. You know, and we've used that word ecclesia for some of our projects and things like that. It's just the Greek word that means the called out assembly. These are the people that are called out of old physical Israel and out of the other nations and are called in to the new spiritual Israel. I mean, the proper, they were still Israel. And they, they, they got their scriptures because they still met with the synagogues. Uh, where as long as they possibly could, wherever they possibly could. In Thessalonica, we read where they were forced out early on. But in, in most other places, even in the book of Revelation, it's talking about one of the churches of Asia, and it's calling them the synagogue of Satan, because they, they were being corrupted by the unbelieving Judeans. Uh, they're in that church. So the that's how they got the scriptures. I mean, no one could afford a set of scrolls of the Torah, of the Tanakh, all of the Hebrew scriptures. They were priceless. That's why you typically had to have at least ten Judean families in a city before you could even start a synagogue, because you had to have a certain critical mass to have enough wealth to be able to acquire a set of those scrolls. And the early believers in Christ operated as subsets within these Judean synagogues, and that's the whole context of the letter to the Gentile Roman believers. Paul is telling them, 
you need to be good members of the synagogue community. Yes, I know the leaders are, you know, are corrupt and, and they don't understand, uh, but I haven't got there yet to talk to them. So please obey them. Don't offend them by bringing in unclean food in when you all are eating together. Uh, when they, they serve as the you know, magistrates of the Roman government, obey. And when they collect the temple tax, pay it. That's the context of Romans 13, which is so abused and completely misunderstood you know, today in the English-speaking world. So uh, that's way too long of an answer to your question that uh, that's how they got the scriptures. They, they, they parasited off of the Judean synagogues, still trying to pull out the righteous remnant right to the very end, after which there would be no hope for any of them. Okay, well, we've, we've, this is a lengthy introduction to Acts 26. We've got just a, just a few minutes, but let's at least read the first paragraph uh, here. Verses 26, 1 through 3, please. Agrippa now spoke to Paul. You have permission to state your case. So Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. Many charges have been leveled against me by the Jews, King Agrippa. I count myself fortunate to be able to make my defense today in your presence especially since you are an expert in all the various Jewish customs and disputes. I beg you to listen to me patiently. Great, thank you. So here, uh, by way of review, Festus had taken over for Felix and tried to get Paul to go up to Jerusalem, which would have been certain death. Paul had appealed to Caesar so Festus had to send Paul to Rome, and he needed a letter explaining the case to send along with him. And Agrippa had come down to visit. Agrippa had no jurisdiction, either in Jerusalem or in Caesarea. He, he uh, was in charge of uh, a big part of Galilee and part of uh, Perea, uh, modern-day Jordan, uh, on the other side of the Jordan River, uh, and uh, Banyas, I believe, uh, which uh, we we call Caesarea Philippi in the Bible, it's it's Banyas again today, part of the uh, Golan Heights that uh, Israel occupies. So he had come down from there as a courtesy visit, and he is now going to listen to Paul so he can help uh, because he has a much greater understanding of the. Um, Judean customs and religions and so on, as we as this is just stated, and Paul's aware of that, and Festus is aware of that, and uh, he's a descendant of Herod the Great, who is really an Edomite, Idumean is what they were called in their last days. The the, the uh, race was dying out by the time uh, Herod the Great was born, and they they had all been forced to convert to. Uh, the Judean national religion in the days of the Maccabean kings. They were conquered and forced at sword point to convert uh, to the Judean national religion. So they knew all about the history of Israel and their history and the law of Moses, but there was, there was never a great affection between 
the remnant of the Idumeans, the, the, the Herodian uh, family, and the Judean people, there was always a nervous tension because of their, you know, history. Uh, so Paul doesn't promise brevity, but he, he does ask for patience as he explains this case, and he is truly thankful to have this opportunity to speak before Agrippa. Now, let's go ahead and at least read uh, verses 4 through 8. The way I have lived since my youth and the life I have led among my own people from the beginning and later at Jerusalem is well known to all Jews. They have been acquainted with me for a long time and can testify, if they wish, to my life lived as a Pharisee, the strictest sect of our religion. But today I stand trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. The twelve tribes of our people fervently worship God day and night in the hope that they will see that promise fulfilled. It is because of this hope, Your Majesty, that I stand accused by the Jews. Let me ask why you, above all, who are Jews, should find it hard to believe that God raises dead men to life. Great. So, at the beginning, I, I reminded us that back in Acts 24, Paul had stated that, that both he and the Pharisees were expecting an imminent resurrection. And that's the context that Paul is trying to, to uh, set here for these charges against him. That, uh, that, you know, he can be accused of speaking against the temple. He can be accused of speaking that the law of Moses would, would change. Same charges that were made against Stephen. But Paul is going to assert that this promise to raise Israel from the dead is what they're really upset about. And as we've already pointed out, he has a spiritual expectation for this fulfillment. And they are looking for a physical. And so what we will see is that this, this transformation of Israel from a condemned, idolatrous, prostitute nation, that this transformation of her into a spiritual, pure nation is the promised resurrection of the dead. And that this involves the destruction of the temple, the, the doing away of the law of Moses, and, uh, and all of the other trappings of the physical Judean nation. It is all going to be swept away. That is the resurrection that was promised to Israel. And... And again, he's, Paul is not referring here to New Testament letters, which haven't been written yet. He's not referring to verbal instructions he received directly from God. He's referring directly to the Hebrew Scriptures. The fulfillment of this promise made to our 12 tribes. That's physical Old Covenant Israel, just as our dispensational friends assert. These promises were made to physical Israel. Paul is reasserting that 
right here in his trial. And so, again, I think we can, we can demonstrate what this means and how it is so vastly different from what our dispensational friends mean. Anyway, I need to wrap this up, but uh, we do have time for any comments uh, or questions that we might could answer next time. I'm grateful that it's a spiritual, not a physical, that uh, is being emphasized here. Well, we should be. I mean, you know, if we're if we're sitting around, if we're going to rot in the ground for thousands of years, still waiting for a physical resurrection, which is so many Protestant creeds have that in in them, uh, sadly. But you know, yeah, what do you get to vote? At what age of your body is going to be resurrected? <laughs> Good grief. You, you know, well, I mean, you can come up come up yeah, with all. Yeah, I'll be back of, a few years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, dear. You can come up, if, if you focus on physical resurrection, you can come up with all kinds of, of absurdities. You know, it's, it's not about that. It's about being joined spiritually to Jesus Christ in his eternal body, his eternal bride, his eternal kingdom. He who believes on me can never die. So, yes, your body will die, but you will live forever in Christ. I mean, that's the spiritual promise that he's given us. Amen. Thanks, Mark. That was a great lesson, and thanks for everybody's input. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small think big, and press on towards the straight gate.